0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Transform TV podcast series. Today, we're going to be talking about the future, which is great. Uh, And um, we're joined today by Bronwyn Williams, who is partner, foresight lead and trend analyst at Flux and co-author of The Future Starts Now. And Theo Priestley, co-author of The Future Starts Now, producer, writer, marketer, creative director, and futurist. Bronwyn, Theo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. Uh, Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Bronwyn, you wanna start? Sure, I'll go
1: first. So yeah, as, as you said in the introduction, I work in the, the trends and the foresight space. So I'm kind of in the intersection between what is going on in the world and what is going to come next. And essentially our role, so I do work with corporate clients mostly for my day job, is to be, as I like to say, the sort of contemporary equivalent of a medieval watchman sort of scanning the horizon looking for the marauding hordes and the opportunities Mm -hmm. and the threats that they're bringing. Essentially our role in that space is really just to buy our clients' time. But when you start moving into the foresight space, it gets a bit more complicated because then it's about actually changing the future and then it gets into essentially trying to help people to make better decisions. And that requires firstly understanding the world as it is, not as you want it to be, but as it really is, because only then can we make decisions about how to nudge that world off the probable course where the current trends are taking us to a better version that fits with our own ideals as to where we should be headed into the future. So that's basically the the realm that I cover. My background is in marketing, economics, and foresight, which all ties together very nicely because it's all to do with both, once again, understanding trade offs and understanding incentives and how to nudge them.
0: Brilliant. Theo?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm similar kind of vein to Bronwyn myself. Uh, I used to be a, an independent industry analyst, so I would work with corporate clients to basically understand their market forces, uh, their go-to-market strategy, their marketing strategies, and the product market, uh, product management strategy as well, R&D. Um, that kind of moved into the foresight and horizon scanning space, mainly in uh, the technology futures. So what was coming around the corner, what would actually impact their business um, their technology strategy, the business transformation and digital strategies as well. Um, are the competition looking at the same kind of technology trends as well? Um, what projecting that out to maybe sort of five, 10, 15, 20 years time. What you know, what is actually going to try and disrupt the space and how do we get ahead of that kind of sort of curve? So I work, again, uh, like Bronwyn, mainly with corporate clients. Um, I do keynote speaking as well at technology and large events as well. Um, um, and, and obviously just written the book as a, as a kind of um, uh, a gathering and culmination of all that experience.
0: Well, let, let's dive straight into the book because it's fascinating to say the future starts now. I mean, I think it's a very bold statement, which I, I love. Uh, and uh, and it's exciting but um, you know what led you to, to to write it? What inspired you to write it? And um, uh, and now, and why now?
1: Yeah. So again, Who I can, to take I can start yeah. there, and then Theo can jump in. <laughs> so yeah, sure. Theo and I met on, on Twitter as most like you know productive business relationships do these days. You know, I love we it. do kind of live in the future, and I think that both of us were very frustrated at the discourse taking place around foresight and around futures at the moment. People tend to fall into one of two very binary camps, either being completely dystopian and just saying we should all sort of give up, roll over, and accept a degrowth future, which is not acceptable for me. I've got a small child. I'm not prepared to actually try and sell her on such a sort of low ball utopia going ahead. On the other hand, you've also got this completely disingenuous uh, over optimists who are selling us some completely implausible futures, things like technological abundance for everyone forever, and exponential growth just never seems to bend onto the curve, completely discounting reality and the fact that there are limits to scale in any direction. Mm. So we're really looking for a more pragmatic view on the future, but also one that is not purely focused on navel-gazing and complaining that actually has some sort of grain of hope and agency that comes with it. And that's where the title comes from. Whenever you pick up this book, whether it's today or 200 years in the actual future, the future still kind of starts now. It's never quite here. (laughs) And that's the point, right? As long as it's not here, we can do something about it to change it. We want to get more people involved in the conversation and getting people involved in talking about it and actually doing things to avoid base case either very dystopian or very incredible in the worst sense of the word versions of what's being yeah. sold to us as the most probable course for the future.
0: Uh, you know, I completely agree with you on that. I think that there's, there's so much confusion, so much hype and noise, and uh, it really leads people to either, well, I guess to paralysis maybe to some degree, you know. Um, Thea, what was your inspiration for getting involved with this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been threatening, uh, and I think threatening is the right term here, to write a book um, uh, for a while, and I've always kind of sort of been quite hesitant and uh, uh, around, one, the timing of it, and two, would anyone actually want to pick up and read uh, what I write? And the conclusion was that I'm, I'm not an expert in every single aspect of uh, of what the book covers, um, and I think um, I, when I when we we started discussing the concept of the book um it was much it's much easier to for someone to pick up and listen and read to a diverse range of voices um mm-hmm. and different perspectives and on different topics uh, rather than uh, reading someone's 60 000 to 80,000 word tome um in one monosyllabic voice um or conversation and this is very much a conversational book you know we have 20 different people all uh, all adding their sort of perspective in what the future looks like in their given particular topic and I think that's the the best the best way to actually build a book is is inviting so many different people from different backgrounds some are well-known futurists some are just touching on the subject now um, some practice some don't um, and and they come from four corners of the world as well and we're at that stage i think in in our business and professional lives where we need that kind of rich and diverse uh diversification of voice and 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 to be heard and to be to be seen so it adds far more weight and credibility in a book to give these people a voice and to let those experts shine as well uh, and and obviously okay. you, we want that conversation. We want people to get involved. We want them to disagree. You know, I don't agree with that. We want them to get in touch with the people from the chapter as well and have that conversation.
0: What what I loved about the book is how practical or the practicality of it all, the fact that you're able to talk to different people with different backgrounds, different opinions, different voices. You know, what you just said, I think really speaks to a lot of our audience that when there's a problem, OK, either talk to a big consultant or read a book with like a thousand pages, you know, that some one person is giving you their opinion on. Uh, so, no, the, the, the book is is very rich in that sense. Um, one of the topics that you guys talk about, and I guess you can't talk about the future without talking about technology, uh, you know, and how it's going to be used in the years to come. But do, do you think that sometimes we get distracted by technology and what it can do for us?
2: Yeah, it's very yes, much. Absolutely. Shows, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we it's, both agree
0: uh... on that point.
1: Like if you <laughs> hang up on, on technology first, you miss the bigger picture. I mean, like technology is at its it is something we have created as humans. So if you're using technology as the guide, you're really missing the point. People came first and they will outlast all the different gadgets that we're seeing. But there's a very strong incentive to focus on the technology because it's exciting. It's like, it's provocative, it's cool. it gets the crowd going, right? Yeah. It's, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, everyone wants to talk about the new shiny gadget. And also it feels tangible. And that's what's so scary about the future. When you start to think about the positive side of the future, it's about broadening your horizon, exploring what can be possible. But that's also very very scary because we all know when you're confronted with a blank page it's very hard to start writing to be given a sort of tighter brief you can start to think follow a train of thought and technology gives us something to hold on to but a lot of the times it's sort of a it's a false flag to hold on to because that's not where the real change is coming from technology tends to enhance real social real environmental real macro trend change but it doesn't dictate the future path that we are taking. So if you do focus purely on the technology, you can get distracted and you can also get quite depressed or quite scared or quite overexcited, falling into one of those two traps you were speaking about earlier. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, you, you know, in our space, in the supply chain space, we're seeing failure after failure after failure with regards to digital transformation initiatives and implementation. And uh, you know, is it the tech? Or is the people, you know, is it the cultural thing that the people are just maybe so overly reliant on the tech that they're failing to realize that they need to address processes and people uh, as, as well? But do you think that we become too obsessed with what technology can do for us in our jobs, in our daily lives, in our society in general?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're at this stage um, right now where we are being led by the technology giants, um, and again, the book kind of sort of states that you know you have a stake in this future, so you know you have a voice. Stand up and be counted. Um, the tech giants would probably say uh, the opposite, which is let us dictate what happens. And it's very much a case that when when you talk to supply chain professionals and organizations and just businesses in general, where they are being sold to by the sales guy who has a quota to meet, who says I can promise you the world with my particular piece of technology or automation software um, and let's design the business around what this piece of software can do rather than let's adapt the software to what you want your business to achieve and very much um, when I speak with clients for example I'm very much a pessimist Um, and some people like being told the truth and some people don't Um, you know and I always say if you don't want me to tell you the truth go speak to Accenture or, or someone else who you'll pay lots of yeah. money to tell you what you want to hear. I'm the person yeah. that you pay th- to tell you what you don't want to hear, but it's almost various sort of a pessimistic and pragmatic approach to technology because I've worked in the technology sector and and I kind of understand, you know, the, the marketing and the shiny sort of way things are yeah. sold. Um, and, and obviously an execs eyes will light up when you tell them it's going to help the bottom line and things like that. But of course, capabilities in the business. No one ever tells you to understand what the capabilities in the business are to actually use this kind of software or any piece of technology. Um, no, like like to, you to say, it's as though, it's
0: yeah, like, like you just said, the technology sort of, you know, the business has to fit around the technology. But here, here's, here's sort of like a, 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 I guess, maybe it's a difficult question. Do you think technology is going to shape the future or will the future shape technology?
2: At the moment, the technology is shaping our future, and this is where we lead. This is where we get into like the black mirror scenarios, and 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 um, you know the public perception and business perception is oh well we must accept this because technology is telling us what the future is going to look like. I mean, the book itself is you know examines technology as only one aspect of it. It's about society and it's about business as well. So you know, society is you me. Everything else that goes on in the world, business is what fuels some of society, um, and technology is just a small enabling part of that. It's not the be-all and end-all. So again, you know, let's let's take a stake um, in what the future um, looks like. Let's have a voice. And also let's sort of stand up and sort of say, well, I don't want this, you know, one of the three or four big technocrats to sort of say and dictate to me that this is Mm. what my future looks like. I want my future to look very different to what they are, what they're dictating to me and the same for my kids as well. Do
0: you know, sorry, Bronwyn, are you going to say something?
1: I suppose I have a slightly different perspective, and I don't think that technology is guiding the future at all. I think that the people controlling technology are guiding the future for us. Technology <laughs> is a tool. And it's a, it's a subtlety, but I think it's an important point that, as, as my favorite sort of Terry Pratchett quote goes, you know, like artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. And technology is only as good or as bad as how we choose to use it. And I use the term we quite loosely because unfortunately we do have huge power disparities in this world and some people get a, a bigger practical vote as to how things are nudged going into the future but it is very much human directed and the mistakes that we are seeing are human mistakes they are not mechanical mistakes that are guiding us into some sort of dark future it's choices that actual people human beings are making and by trying to hide behind technology i think that that we give a whole lot of rope for people and for whole societies to to essentially hang themselves with so I think we do need to put that quite firmly back into human health I agree
0: like like you see you know AI having biases you know and 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 so forth I mean that that is not down to right AI itself creating those it's they've been put in there by uh the human overlords uh at the moment um but speaking of let's talk about human capitals for a second because you you have quite a few chapters in your book about that and uh, you know, the intersection of technology and human capital and business. You discuss the implications of giving more and more power to um, technology to execute traditionally human jobs. That is, and, and by the way, Theo, I watched the TED talk that you gave on sort of choosing a politician, uh, you know, that, that is AI. Um, it is a genuine fear for people at all levels uh, that they will be replaced. So, are are we really going to see a, a future where AI is taking on leadership positions in business? Do you think?
2: Um, there are examples already where uh, sub hedge fund managers, for example, have relinquished a board, a board level role to uh, a particular algorithm that makes uh, financial decisions for them. Um, I think, and, and it's interesting as well because I think last year I read a particular Deloitte report. Um, which said 60% of um, the C-suite or business leaders uh, still ignore the data that's in front of them um, and go by gut instinct. Now, you can't program gut instinct into an algorithm. So despite, and again, despite what um, the technology and what technology leaders tell us about AI algorithms, machine learning, deep learning, and, and it replacing people, Um, I think we've got a long way to go before it actually automates every aspect of decision-making. It's there again to enhance decision-making and sometimes the speed around decision-making depending on the conditions that you're in. Um, But you can't replace, again, human gut instinct, people's uh, capacity to outthink a particular scenario um, even when the data or the the processes uh, restrict you. Uh, I do find people are far more creative and restrictive conditions than they are being left, uh, you know, uh, being given uh, such a wider sort of uh, uh, playing field.
0: Just just look at the COVID situation. There was no data, you know, of what we had done in a modern environment uh, when in a previous global pandemic, because there hadn't been a previous global pandemic in this kind of modern environment. Um, So what is the impact on of COVID, you think, on your research, on the conversations you've had? and the outlook moving forward.
1: I could jump in there and say that what's happened with COVID is COVID has been an accelerant, much like technology has been an accelerant in a lot of the directions that we're pointing anyway. I think it relates firmly to the question that you just gave about how a lot of what is actually seen to be sort of automation taking over our jobs or our roles in society is really a case of us deferring to technology or ceding our own personal responsibility and authority over to a different power, be that a technological power or be that towards the superior human power or some sort of central authority. A lot of that is driven by fear and also by convenience. But of course, what we give away in terms or to gain in, in terms of efficiency, we give up in terms of resilience. And that has been probably one of the, the deepest and probably the most disturbing and one of the longest lasting trends you'll see from COVID is a huge deferral of agency, responsibility, control to fewer and fewer hands, be they once again technological hands or be they human hands or central authorities or central bodies. So we've seen quite a huge concentration of power on one hand, but also a growing sense of helplessness in the general population, which it speaks back to the whole sort of thesis that we put together in our book. But for many, many people, they've sort of given up on the future that we sort of riding into the future based on the biggest voices, the most powerful voices in the room. And the more we do that, the more helpless we feel and the more of our authority and agency as individuals, we are then encouraged to hand over to those same powers because we just feel so helpless again. So I am concerned about the, the vicious and virtuous cycles that we've seen moving at this point. And that's why we think this book is arriving at just the right time to get people to remember That we have to hold on to agency because agency seeded is agency that's very, very hard to get Mm. back. Whether you're seeding your decision making as a middle manager to a machine, whatever can be automated can be replicated. And what can be replicated can be replaced or can be cut out of the marketplace. You're essentially giving up your value as soon as you are automating or seeding away that your ability to direct whatever sort of center of control that you have over your life, your job, your business. Whatever that may be.
0: So, how do you unpick it? I mean, how how do you unpick that uh, path that we seem to be headed into?
1: Well, it's a question of agency once again. I can speak about this quite a lot because I am based in South Africa where we have all the problems everyone else is experiencing. Right now, we've had a lot more and a lot worse for quite a long time. And what we're finding now particularly is there's a huge apathy, particularly with young people, when it comes to directing their future. So like voter registrations. And we're talking about a new democracy where their parents didn't even have the vote. Mm -hmm. Now these children are not even wanting to, to use the agency that they have. But the agency that they don't use means that they end up with even less of the politicians that they once in power. So that's a great example of saying that the way to fix this is to start claiming back the agency you still have and using it. If you don't use it, you lose it. So it's very, very important to get involved in these conversations before they get set in stone. So take mm-hmm. a very contentious issue like the issue of, say, genetic manipulation, which is coming to the fore right now, and which Craig wrote about in our book, that's that's a very big conversation. But if you're not involved in that conversation, policymakers are going to make a determinant, yay or nay, on your behalf. And you're going to have to live with that. If you don't like it, you have to get involved before it gets cast into policy stone. So you have to be proactive. and We have to understand that it's much easier to give away power, give away control and it is to claw it back. And that is something that we, that's a message people have to take hold of right now because we are facing a lot of sort of points of no return in terms of that sort of seeding of our authority, whether it's to machines, as I said, or whether it is to bureaucracies of some sort. We have to be very, very careful at this point, because the decisions we make now are going to have a vast impact on the future we have, that we're going into after, after the dust from COVID's themes to settle. We have to be very cognizant of what lines we are prepared to accept and which ones we want to push back on, because the opportunity, the window of opportunity to push back on all of these policies is shrinking right now. So that, that is, a, is a bit of a sermon, but I think it's mm-hmm. something we've all got to be aware of, and particularly in the corporate space, because a lot of these conversations seem to center our own sort of individual rights. we cool. also seen huge moves to greater regulation in the corporate space. Again, if you're not involved in having those conversations about how emerging legislation, it's going to be a lot of it because governments are looking to increase taxation and to increase controls due to sort of population pressures. Corporations are going to find themselves dealing with more and more red tape, which can be completely suffocating if legislation Mm. then ends up effectively consolidating monopolies rather than opening up marketplaces so that smaller players have a space in this world. And that, for the technology question, is probably the biggest threat from the business space. All the emerging technologies, including blockchain, ironically, Mm. at the moment, so you're talking about big data, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, all these technologies are essentially centralizing technologies. These are, this is not the technologies of the 80s and 90s which are about democratizing power and giving access to the internet to individuals. These are technologies that are designed to work on incredible economies of scale. And if you're on the wrong side of that, you get completely cut out of the marketplace. So we have to be involved in in understanding how the policies that are being pushed through right now can either consolidate monopolies or can make a more democratic marketplace. If I was a business leader, I'd be looking at that question very, very carefully right now.
0: You know, what you you say is so interesting because uh, technology is so tempting. You know, we as individuals are giving up our agency uh, for the... uh, maybe laziness or uh the appeal of an easier life um uh, the appear appeal of the tech the gadget you know in all of the years that i've been doing this and i've been talking to people about technological advancements which we are all very excited about no one has ever had the conversation about agency uh and our say and i think it's important to bring this up so how does agency co- uh, coexist with technological advancement so that you can retain both. Is that possible?
1: Well, I think so. I'll have a, one more comment, then I'll hand over to Theo because I think I've spoken quite a lot. Just on the agency piece, when it comes to business-to-business relations, I think that the, the big issue to understand there is that all these technologies, all these wonderful platform-based businesses and software a service companies, they do offer massive efficiencies. So there is a huge gain to be had The efficiencies in terms of cost and in terms of convenience. But there is a baked-in risk there because as soon as you are dealing with a platform player, You are ceding a lot of control over the futures of your business to that player. And this whole emergence of things like corporate denial of service attacks, where deep stack companies, things like software as a service businesses can actually deny their service to you and completely rip the rug out of your value chain are a real business threat we should be aware of. In order to try to claw some of that back, I think that particularly people working in corporates that are in the digital transformation space, in the leadership space, need to be asking if the gains that come from the efficiencies are worth the systemic risk that is baked in, in the long run. Like, Mm. that's that's the other thing. Every, all your competitors can use the same platform-based intermediaries. They can all do that, which means it's not a source of competitive advantage. It's much harder to build internal systems and to build your own relationships directly with your entire supply chain, both suppliers and customers. But in the long run, that could be perhaps the primary source of competitive advantage because that's something that can't be so easily replicated and commoditized. It also means that those third-party platforms can't decide to change their terms and conditions or deplatform you altogether those are the conversations mm. I'd definitely be having. And I think the lessons translate, no matter what scale you look at it from an individual basis, ab 2 b basis, or even an international basis, if you're a smaller yeah. nation, and <laughs> trying yeah. to look at, at your place in the world. But as I said, I've spoken far too much, so here I've sure you... gotten a different perspective to me.
0: I was gonna say, what is your perspective on this?
2: Um, I think there's a couple of phrases that you've used here, which is uh, one is platform, two is apathy, um, three is convenience, um, and, I'm going to throw another one, which is technical debt as well, in a sense, because I think technical debt breeds apathy. Um, I think it is, you know, uh, and and it's all due to the, the the fact that you're sold a platform, which then becomes all pervasive and whichever part of the business or whichever sort of or facet of your life. Even, you know, we we we, uh, we sit on Facebook and LinkedIn, for example, and we've become apathetic about actually removing ourselves from it because mm-hmm. of, the, of that perceived convenience. Um, and, uh, and perceived value that we must remain on it for some reason. And it's the same with businesses, when they look to change systems um, that they have become uh, commoditized to an extent um, they become apathetic to change it because they believe that, that that's their competitive advantage and it's interesting what you say about you know buy versus build it's an eternal question that every sort of CTO and CIO kind of sort of uh, wrestles with um, and the convenient aspect is I'll just buy something quick that's off the shelf, make use of some APIs and, and slap in some other sort of integrations. Um, the, the i think the longer term bit of uh, especially in, on, a, on a competitive sense is actually understanding how these platforms are built and then looking to build something yourself i mean we do you know the investment i mean if you look at the scale of investment that is poured into startups who start with uh you know mvp you know uh, on a hundred thousand dollar check uh, to build something really scrappy and then start selling it to businesses who essentially are their user acceptance um, and then they take that money and build out something further. There's nothing stopping from larger businesses to in, in adopting the same kind of thing over a longer term and start to understand how they could build smaller, and then faster and then, and, and then um, you know, commo- well, commoditize within the business itself, but certainly um, uh, customize it um, to a point where it becomes competitively advantaged. Um, I, I see, yeah I, like I said, I see technical debt as, as, as a step to apathy. Um, mm-hmm. And then we stop questioning why we actually need to move off this platform um, yeah. or why we need to uh, seek other means to, to make our, our businesses work faster um, or, or adopt more, uh, you know, adopt well, more it uh, Well, it circle. Well, it does. Yeah, it does. And, um, and you see it every time someone moves position as well. You know, what they tend to do is actually bring in the technical baggage that they brought in from another organization and shoehorn it into this or into the new organization that they've just been hired into. And that circle sort of starts all over again.
0: Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. But I want to ask you for the members of our audience who would like to find out more about your book and would like to purchase it. Where should they go? Where should they visit?
2: Um it's actually available pretty much everywhere so um, uh, depending on location you can either have it globally shipped uh, via bloomsbury directly or from their Mm -hmm. website or if you go to target amazon waterstones uh, blackwoods um, and and some other places as well it's physical and online retail basically
0: well Theo Bronwyn, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we're very excited to talk to you. Frankly, we could have talked longer and and maybe we'll do (laughs) another one because I want to talk to you guys about sustainability and some of the other chapters in your book. Uh, But the future starts now. For those of you watching at home, check it out. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you watching at home, I'll see you at the next time.